3 a.m. Tales of Terror contains explicit content. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to another episode of 3 a.m. Tales of Terror, where we tell you stories of the paranormal. I'm your host, Jamie. And I'm Kenny. And our third co-host, Eli, is also in the room, getting comfy in his bed, or his chair. So this is part two of Amityville. Uh Uh-oh. Keek wants to say something. No, maybe not. Say something. Do the thing. (laughs) Oh, my God. Okay. So anyways, this is part two. Of Amityville horror story. Um, we're at Christmas Eve. We're at Christmas Eve, and the last thing that we talked about was December twenty third, and how Kathy found the crucifixes in her house hanging upside down. That's the one I, in the closet. <clears throat> yeah. So I believe I read last. I think so. Okay. So we're just gonna get gonna right. Start? Yeah, we're just gonna get right into it because we're gonna try and get through to New Year's Day. Like we're gonna stop on New Year's Day, so we'll get through New Year's Eve. I think it's like chapter nine or no eleven. Ten, chapter ten is the twenty eighth. Okay, so maybe we'll get through December to December thirty first is the twelfth chapter. Yeah, maybe we'll January first. Tra- is chapter 13. Yeah, maybe we'll try to get to at least maybe maybe New Year's Eve. Maybe the 31st will stop there. Okay. So we'll see how far we can get. It was almost a week since Father Mancuso had visited 112 Ocean Avenue. The eerie episodes of that day and night were still very much on his mind, but he had discussed them with no one, not with George and Kathy Lutz, not even with his confessor. During the night of the 23rd, he had come down with the flu. The priest had alternated between chills and sweating, and when he finally got up to take his temperature, the thermometer read 103 degrees. He took some aspirin, hoping to break the fever. This was the Christmas season, and with it began a host of clerical duties, a particularly bad time for a priest to be indisposed. Father Mancuso fell into a troubled sleep. Around four in the morning of Christmas Eve, he awoke to find his temperature now up to 104 degrees. He called the pastor to his rooms. His friend decided to get a doctor. While Father Mancuso waited for the physician, he thought again of the Lutz family. There was something he couldn't quite put his finger on. He kept envisioning a room he believed to be on the second floor of the house. His head swam, but the priest couldn't see it clearly in his mind. It was filled with unopened boxes when he had blessed the home. He remembered he could see the boathouse from its windows. Father Mancuso recalls that while ill in bed, he used the word evil to himself, but thinks the high fever might have been playing tricks with his imagination. He also remembers he had an urge, bordering on obsession, to call the Lutzes and warn them to stay out of that room at all costs. At that same time, in Amityville, Kathy Lutz was also thinking about the room on the second floor. Every once in a while, Kathy felt the need for some time to be by herself, and this was to be her own personal room. She had also considered the room, along with the kitchen, for her meditation. That third bedroom on the second floor would also serve as a dressing room and storage place for her and George's growing wardrobes. Among the cartons in the sewing room were boxes of Christmas ornaments that she had accumulated over the years. 
it was time to unwrap the balls and lights, get them ready to put on the tree her mother and brother had promised to bring over that evening. After lunch, Kathy asked Danny and Chris to bring the cartons down from the living room, down to the living room. George was more interested in his fireplace logs and only half-heartedly worked on the Christmas lights, testing the many colored bulbs and detangling their wires. For the next few hours, Kathy and the children were busy unwrapping tissue paper that enclosed the delicate, bright-colored balls, the little wooden glass angels, Santas, skaters, ballerinas, reindeer, and snowmen that Kathy had added to each year as the children grew up. Each child had his own favorite ornaments and tenderly placed them on the towels Kathy had spread on the floor. Some dated back to Danny's first Christmas, but today the children were admiring an ornament that George had bought to his new family. It was an heirloom, a unique galaxy of crescents and stars wrought in sterling silver and encased in 24 karat gold. There was a fixture on the back of the six-inch ornament that let one attach it to a tree. Crafted in Germany more than a century before, it had been given to George by his grandmother, who in turn had received it from her own grandmother. The doctor had come and gone from the rectory. He confirmed that Father Mancuso did indeed have the flu and advised the ailing priest to remain in bed for a day or so. The fever was in his system and could remain high for another 24 hours. Father Mancuso chafed at the idea of remaining idle. He had so much work to do. He agreed that upcoming items on his busy calendar could be put off for a week, but some of his clients in counseling could not afford the same kind of postponement. Nevertheless, both the physician and the pastor insisted that Father Mancuso would only prolong his illness if he insisted upon working or leaving his apartment. There was one thing he could still do, however, and that was to call George Lutz. The bad feeling he had about that second floor room remained and it made him as restless with his as with his fever. When he finally made the call, it was 5 p.m. Danny answered the phone and ran to get his father. Kathy was surprised by the call, but not George. Sitting by the fireplace, he had been thinking about the priest all day. George had felt the urge to call Father Mancuso, but couldn't decide just what he wanted to say. He was sorry to hear of Father Mancuso's flu and asked if there was anything he could do. Assured there was nothing any man could do to relieve the priest's, the priest's discomfort, George began to speak of what was happening at the house. At first, it was a light conversation. George told Father Mancuso about bringing down the ornaments to trim the Christmas tree that Jimmy, his brother-in-law, would be delivering at any moment. Father Mancuso interrupted George. I have to talk to you about something that's been on my mind. Do you know the room on your second floor that faces the boathouse, the one where you had all those unopened boxes and cartons? Sure, Father, that's going to be Kathy's sewing room and meditation room when I get the chance to fix it up. Hey, you know what we found in there the other day? Flies. Hundreds of houseflies. Can you imagine in the middle of winter? George waited for the priest's reaction. He got it. George... I don't want you or Kathy or the children to go back in that room. You have to stay out of there. Why, Father? What's up there? Before the priest could answer, there was a loud crack crackling sound on the phone. Both men pulled back from the earpieces in surprise. George couldn't make out Father Mancuso's next words. All that remained was an irritating static noise. Hello? Hello? Father, I can't hear you. There must be a bad connection. From his end, Father Mancuso was also trying to hear George through the static and only faintly heard the hellos. 
Finally, the priest hung up, then dialed the Lutz's number again. He could hear the phone ringing, but no one picked up. The priest waited for ten rings before finally giving up. He was very disturbed. When he could no longer hear Father Mancuso through the crackling, George had also hung up his receiver. He waited for the priest to call back. For several minutes, he sat in the kitchen and stared at the silent telephone. Then he dialed Father Mancuso's private number at the rectory. There was no answer. In the living room, Kathy began wrapping the few Christmas gifts she had accumulated before moving to Amityville. She had gone to the sales at Sears and to the Green Acre Shopping Center in Valley Stream, picking up bargains and clothing for her children and other items for George and her family. Sadly, Kathleen... Kathy noted that the pile of boxes was rather small and silently berated herself for not leaving the house to go out shopping. There were few toys for Danny, Chris, and Missy, but it was too late to do anything about it. She had sent the children up to the playroom so she could work alone. She thought about Missy. She had not answered her daughter's question about talking angels. Kathy had put it off by telling Missy she'd ask Daddy about it, but it never came up when she and George went to bed. Why would Missy come up with such an idea? Did it have anything to do with the child's peculiar behavior yesterday in her bedroom? And what was she looking for in the sewing room? Kathy's concentration was broken when George returned from the phone in the kitchen. He had an odd expression on his face and was avoiding her gaze. Kathy waited for him to tell her about Father Mancuso when the doorbell rang. She looked around, startled. It must be my mother. George, they're here already and I haven't even started supper. She hurried toward the kitchen. You get the door. Kathy's brother, Jimmy Connors, was a big, strapping youth who genuinely, who genuinely liked George. That evening, his face ex exuded a special warmth and charm. He was to be married on the day after Christmas and had asked George to be his best man. But when mother and son entered the house, Jimmy, lugging a sizable scotch pine, both their faces changed at the sight of George, who hadn't shaved or showered for almost a week. Kathy's mother... Joan was alarmed. Where are Kathy and the kids? She asked George. She's making supper and they're up in the playroom. Why? I just had the feeling something was wrong. This was the first time his in-laws had visited the house, so George had to show his mother-in-law where the kitchen was located. Then he and Jimmy hefted the tree into the living room. Boy, that's some fire you've got going there. George explained that he just couldn't warm up, hadn't been able to since the day he moved in, and that he had already burned 10 logs that day. Yeah, Jimmy agreed. It does kind of seem chilly around here. Maybe there's something wrong with your burner or thermostat? Nope, answered George. The oil burner's working fine, and the thermostat's set to 80 degrees. Come on down to the basement, and I'll show you. In the rectory, Father Mancuso's doctor had warned him that one's body temperature normally rises after five in the afternoon even though he was uncomfortable and his stomach hurt the priest's mind kept turning to the strange telephone problems with the Lutz the Lutzes were having it was now eight o'clock and his repeated attempts to contact George had been fruitless several times he had asked the operator to check to see if the Lutzes phone was out of order each time it rang inter interminably until a supervisor called him back to report no service problems with the line why hadn't george called him back father mancuso was sure george had heard what he said about the second floor room was there something terribly wrong father mancuso did not trust 112 ocean avenue he could wait no longer he dialed a number he normally used only for emergencies 
The Christmas tree was up at the Lutz's home. Danny, Chris, and Missy were helping their Uncle Jimmy trim it, each urging him to hang his own ornaments first. George had returned to his private world by the fireplace. Kathy and her mother were in the kitchen talking. This was her happy room, the one place in the new house where she felt secure. She complained to her mother that George had changed since they moved in. Ma, he won't take a shower. He won't shave. He doesn't even leave the house to go to the office. All he does is sit by that damn fireplace and complain about the cold. And another thing, every night he keeps going out to check out the boathouse. What's he looking for, Mrs. Connors? Mrs. Connors asked. Who knows? All he keeps saying is he's got to look around out there and check on the boat. That doesn't sound like George. Have you asked him if anything's the matter? Oh, sure, Kathy threw up her hands, and all he does is throw more wood on the fire. In one week, we've gone through almost a whole cord of wood. Kathy's mother shivered and pulled her sweater tighter around her body. Well, you know, it is kind of chilly in the house. I've felt it ever since I came in. Jimmy, standing on a chair in the living room, was about to fix George's ornaments on top of the tree. He, too, shivered. Hey, George, you got a door open someplace? I keep getting a draft on the back of my neck. George looked up. No, I don't think so. I locked up everything before. He felt a sudden urge to check the second floor sewing room. I'll be right back. Kathy and Mrs. Connors passed him as they came in from the kitchen. He didn't say a word to either woman, just ran up the stairs. What's with him? Miss Connors asked. Kathy just shrugged. See what I mean? She began to arrange the Christmas gifts under the tree. When Danny, Chris, and Missy counted the meager number of prettily wrapped packages on the floor, there was a chorus of disappointed voices behind her. What are you crying about? George was back, standing in the doorway. Knock it off. You kids are too spoiled anyway. Kathy was about to snap back at her husband for yelling at the children in front of her mother and brother when she saw the look on George's face. Did you open the window in the sewing room, Kathy? Me? I haven't been up there all day. George turned to the children near the tree. Have any of you kids been in that room since you brought down all the Christmas boxes? All three shook their heads. George, had, George hadn't moved from his position in the doorway. His eyes returned to Kathy. George, what is it? A window is open and the flies are back. Crack. Everyone in the room jumped at the loud sound that, that came from somewhere outside. Again came a sharp knock, and outside Harry barked. The boathouse door, it's open again. George turned to Jimmy. Don't leave them alone. I'll be right back. He grabbed his parka from the hall closet and headed for the kitchen door. Kathy began to cry. Kathy, what's going on? Mrs. Connors said, her voice rising. Oh, Mama, I don't know. A man watched as George came out of the side door and ran toward the back of the house. He knew the door led from the kitchen because he had been at 112 Ocean Avenue before. He sat in a car parked in front of the Lutz's home and observed George shutting the boathouse door. He glanced at his watch. It was almost 11 o'clock. The man picked up the microphone of a car radio. Zamataro, this is Gianfrido. You can call your friend back and tell him the people in 112 Ocean Avenue are home. Sergeant Al Giafrido at the Suffolk County Police Department was doing a job this Christmas Eve, just as he had been on the night of the DeFeo family massacre. Well, that's a last name. Well, you know. <laughs> Very Italian. <laughs> and how interesting that they sent the same cop that was there during yeah. the DeFeo thing for Christmas Eve. Right. That's... Maybe they're just checking. 
Well, Father Mancuso made the emergency call, remember? He probably that's told right. him to go check on the house to see what's going on. That's right. That's right. Because, oh, yeah, he did. Because remember, he called a number. Yep. And he called only in emergencies. And he probably told him, hey, you need to go check on these people. Some fuck shit's happening in that sewing room. I think it's going to be a good thing that her mother and brother are there to see what's going on with George. And solidify the fact that he's gone cuckoo bananas. And hopefully think that it's not him. Because, I mean, obviously they know it's not him. Yeah, they, they seem to like, well, you know, they said that they liked him and stuff like that and they knew George. Yeah. It'd, and be, like, it'd be like me being a recluse and not showering or, well, I don't shave, but. Yeah. Not showering or going outside or doing anything around the house. Well, and be like, that's kind of weird. Even even if, like, you do shave, like, if you had, like, if your beard was, like, unruly. Gross. Yes. Yeah. That would be one thing, because you, you normally don't keep it unruly. What do you want? You're supposed to be taking a nap. <laughs> Cake, what are you doing? Okay. So, anyways, so now, now we're on Christmas Day. We're on Christmas Day. Christmas Day, and it is the seventh. Merry Christmas. Is it the seventh night in the house? I think so. Yeah, the eighteenth. Well, it does say for the seventh night in a row. That's the. That's the. Okay. I'm just gonna let you read. I'll shut up. The first sentence. You should try that more often. <laughs> Roasted. <laughs> Eli has assumed the napping position, so he is ready. He tuckered out. Yeah. Cake. And Pup's not here anymore. <laughs> He's just chilling. All right. Oh, yeah. December 25th. My favorite day of the year. Love Christmas. Christmas. It's so annoying. Hey, <laughs> putting up, not Christmas in general, just putting up the decorations. For, I'm just glad we don't have to do that this year. Here, we'll be out. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Your mom goes overboard, and you know she does. Not really. She hasn't, yes, she she does. hasn't really been doing it, though. Yeah. I decorate for her. Well, yeah, but the stuff that she has, she just, it's overboard. I can't. <laughs> we hung, we hung like lights on our bar and that was it. And tinsel. And we had our tree. That's because I didn't have everything to put up. Well, that's because I'm lazy and don't want to put anything up. I don't give a shit. Well, if you don't decorate for Christmas, we don't decorate for Halloween. Oh my gosh. That's I don't, we don't world. decorate for Halloween. I don't. That freaking cuckoo clock is going to go off 12 times. It's so annoying. Cuckoo. <laughs> okay. I am the walrus. Cuckoo, cuckoo. <laughs> okay. Hold on. Can we just pause for Bruh, one second? you just told me to start I know, reading. but there's something in my eye and I can't get it out. Probably your eyeball. No. Well, if you washed your hands. I did wash my hands because we ate pizza. I didn't want to get pizza all over the book. Look at <laughs> December 25th. For the seventh night in a row, George awoke at exactly 3.15 a.m. He sat up in bed in the winter moonlight flooding the bedroom. George saw Kathy quite clearly. She was sleeping on her stomach. He reached out his hand to touch her head. At that instant, Kathy woke up. As she looked wildly around, George could see the fright in her eyes. She was shot in the head, Kathy yelled. She was shot in the head. I heard the explosion in my head. Detective Gianfrido... Gianfrido? I don't know. It's very Italian. I don't know. Detective Gianfrido would have understood what had frightened and awake, awoke... Awakened? Awoke Kathy. <laughs> I can't read today. <laughs> 
Filing his report after the initial investigation the night of the DeFeo murders, Gian had written the written that Luis, the mother of the family, had been shot in the head while sleeping on her stomach. Everyone else, including her husband, who was lying right beside her, had been shot in the back while laying in the same position. This information had been included in the material turned over to the Suffolk County prosecution team, but was never released to the news media. In fact, this detail had never come out, even at Ronnie DeFeo's trial. Now, Kathy Lutz also knew how Luis... Luis DeFeo had died that night. She was in the very same bedroom. George held his shaken wife in his arms until she had calmed down and fallen back to sleep. Then once again, the urge to check the boathouse came over him, and George quietly slipped from the room. He was almost upon Harry in his compound when the dog awoke, springing to his feet. Shh, Harry, it's all right. Take it easy, boy. The dog settled back on his haunches and watched George test the boathouse door. It was closed and locked. Once more, he reached out and reassured Harry, It's all right, boy. Go back to sleep. George turned and started back towards the house. George circled around the swimming pool fence. The orb of the full moon was like a huge flashlight lighting his way. He looked up at the house and stopped short. His heart leaped. From Missy's second-floor bedroom window, George could see the little girl staring at him, her eyes following his movements. Oh, God, he whispered aloud. Directly behind his daughter, frighteningly visible to George, the face of a pig. He was sure he could see little red eyes glaring at him. Missy! he yelled. The sound of his own voice broke the grip of terror of his heart and body. George ran from the house. He pounded up the stairs to Missy's bedroom and turned on the light. She was in bed, lying on her stomach. He went to her and bent over. Missy? There was no answer. She was fast asleep. There was a creak behind him. He turned. Beside the window that looked out the boathouse, Missy's little chair was slowly rocking back and forth. Six hours later, at 9.30 in the morning, George and Kathy sat in the kitchen, drinking coffee, confused and upset with the events that were taking place in their new home. They had gone over some of the incidents each had witnessed, and now were trying to put together what was real and what they might have imagined. It was too much for them. It was December 25th, 1975, Christmas Day, all over America. The promised white Christmas hadn't materialized as yet for Amityville, but it was cold enough to snow at any moment. Inside, their three children were in the living room, playing near the tree with what few toys George and Kathy had managed to accumulate before moving in eight days early. earlier. George figured out that in the first week, he had burned over 100 gallons of oil, an entire quart of logs. Holy shit. That's a lot, dude. 100 gallons last most people a year. And he burned it in eight days. Yeah. With mm. a cord of, of wood. I don't know what that means. A cord? Yeah. So it's a measurement. It's a, it's a super... Down here we don't really have that problem because we don't have winters like that. Mm-mm. I don't... I know what a cord looks like. 128 cubic feet. A cord is what most people, again, oh, keep at their house. Oh, my God. Yeah. So down here we don't really use cords. No. Or if you have a cord of wood, it's like emergency use. You have it all year. You might have it for five years. You might have it for right. ten years. He burned through not only 100 gallons of oil, but also the whole side of his house of wood, pretty much. Because that's what most people yeah. do. They put it on the side of their house. Yeah. And mind you, it's also steadily 80 degrees in that house with the thermometer. Yep. I don't even want to know what their electric bill is. I don't. Well, they have an oil furnace. So. Yeah, but the thermometer. Low voltage. Oh, okay. You're so cute. No. <laughs> God, okay. Wow, this 24-volt thermometer is really going to ruin this electric bill. 
No. <laughs> he has it set to 80. It's probably trying to keep up. It's probably not getting to 80. Oh. It might be with him doing the fire. Yeah, I don't, but... know. I don't know. Someone would have to go and buy more wood and a few groceries such as milk and bread. Gotta have your milk sandwiches if it's gonna snow. He had told Kathy about trying to reach Father Mancuso on the telephone after the priest had warned him about their sewing room. Now, Kathy dialed his number herself and got no answer. She reasoned that the priest not, not, might, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> now, Kathy dialed his number herself and got no answer. She reasoned that the priest might not be in his apartment because of the holiday and could be visiting his own family. Then she volunteered to go for wood and food. There was no question as to where Father Mancuso was on Christmas Day. He was in the Long Island Rectory. Still suffering, it had it had not disappeared in the 24 hours forecast by the doctor. His fever had not gone below 103 degrees. The priest roamed his room like a caged lion, an energetic worker who loved the long hours he devoted to his calling. Father Mancuso refused to remain in bed. He had a briefcase full of files, those he had to deal with as a family counselor, and those of some of his parish clients. In spite of the pastor's request that he rest, the priest would be in a full the priest would put on a full day on Christmas. Above all, Father Mancuso could not shake the uneasiness he felt about the Lutzes in their house. George heard Kathy return from her shopping. He could tell she was backing the van in because of the grinding sound the snow tires made in the driveway. For some strange reason, the noise bothered him, and he became annoyed with his wife. Same. He went out to meet her, took two logs from the van, put them in the fireplace, and then sat down in the living room, refusing to unload any more. Kathy fumed. George's attitude and appearance were getting on her nerves. Somehow she could sense they were heading for a fight, but she held her tongue for the moment. She took the bags of groceries from the van and left the remaining logs stacked inside. If George felt cold enough, Kathy knew he'd go get him himself. She and George had cautioned Danny, Chris, and Missy to stay out of the sewing room on the second floor without giving them any reason. That made the children even more curious about what might lie hidden behind the now-closed door. It could be more Christmas presents, Chris suggested. Danny agreed, but Missy said, I know why we have to keep out. Jody's in there. Jody? Who's Jody? Danny asked. He's my friend. He's a pig. Oh, you're such a baby, Missy. You're always making up dumb things, sneered Chris. At six o'clock that evening, Kathy was preparing supper for her family when she heard the sounds of something tiny and delicate striking against the glass of her kitchen window. It was dark outside, but she could see it was snowing. White flakes were tumbling down through the reflection of the kitchen light, and Kathy stared at them as the rising wind whipped the snow against the pane. Snow at last, she said. Christmas and snowing. It brought a reassuring sense of familiarity to the troubled woman. She recalled her own childhood days. There always seems to be snow on Christmas time when she was young. Kathy kept looking at the little snowflakes. Outside the multicolored lights from the neighborhood, Christmas trees gleamed through the night. Behind her, the radio was playing Christmas carols. She became peaceful in her happy kitchen nook. After supper, George and Kathy sat silently in the living room. The Christmas tree was all lit up, and George's tree-topping ornament made a beautiful addition to the decorations. Reluctantly, he had gone out to the van and brought in more of the wood. There are now six logs in front of the blazing fireplace, just enough to last through the night at the rate George was shoveling them in. Kathy worked on some of the children's clothes, patching the boys' trousers that were forever wearing through their knees. Letting down a few of Missy's denim pants, 
the little girl was growing taller, and already the hems were above the tops of her shoes. At 9 o'clock, Kathy went up to the third floor playroom to get Missy ready for bed. She heard her daughter's voice come from her bedroom. Missy was talking out loud, obviously speaking to somebody else in the room. At first, Kathy thought it was one of the boys, but when she heard Missy say, Isn't the snow beautiful, Jody? When Kathy entered, her daughter was sitting in her little rocker by the window, staring at the falling snow outside. Kathy looked around the bedroom. There was no one there. Who are you talking to, Missy? An angel? Missy looked around the room, then her eyes went back to a corner of the room. No, Mama. Just Jody. Kathy turned her head to follow Missy's glance. There was nothing there but some of Missy's toys on the floor. Jody, is that one of your new dolls? No, Jody's a pig. He's my friend. Nobody can see him but me. Kathy knew that Missy, like other children of her age, often created people and animals to talk to, so she assumed it was the child's imagination at work again. George had not yet told her of the incident in Missy's room that night before. There was another surprise waiting for Kathy when she got to the top floor a few minutes later. Danny and Chris were already in their own bedroom, changing into their pajamas. Usually both boys fought to stay up past ten. This night, at 9.30, they were getting ready without being told, and Kathy wondered why. What's the matter with you two? How come you're not arguing about going to sleep? Her son shrugged, continuing to undress. It's warmer in here, Mama, Danny said. We don't want to play in there anymore. When Kathy checked in there, she was struck by the freezing chill in the playroom. No windows were open, yet the room was ice cold. It certainly wasn't uncomfortable in Danny and Chris's bedroom, nor in the hallway. She felt the radiator. It was hot. Kathy told George about the cold in the playroom upstairs. Too comfortable by the fireplace to want to move, he said he'd check it out in the morning. At midnight, Kathy and George finally went to bed. The snow had stopped falling in Amityville as it had 15 miles away outside of the windows of the Long Island Rectory. Father Mancuso turned away from the window. His head hurt. His stomach pained from the flu cramps. The priest was perspiring, and the feeling of suffocating heat made him take off his bathrobe. When he did remove the robe, he began to shiver with a fit of uncontrollable chills. Father Mancuso couldn't wait to get back into bed. It was cold under the blanket, and he realized he could see his breath in the air. What the hell's going on? he muttered to himself. The priest reached out to the radiator next to his bed. There was absolutely no heat. The sick man now felt his body starting to sweat again. Father Mancuso burrowed deep under the blanket, curling up in a tight ball. He closed his eyes and began to pray. See, like, everything that's happened in this house up to now, like, with the pig situation, I can understand them not leaving. Like, whatever. The the stuff that was happening is just, like, piddly shit like it's fine it's just it's cold and that's reasonable so most sometimes it can be in a house like that in a house that old there can be a room that is like it would have been the house flies right that would have been the telltale this is weird right especially in the dead of winter well and what's also interesting too is they also are self-aware that they are acting different and weird and that shit is going on yet they are so complacent that they're not doing anything about it that's yeah that's the whole thing but then like now at this point though it's like okay you can kind of like as an adult because nothing with the kids had really been happening except with what missy so it's like as an adult you can like wash that away it's like oh well maybe it's just a, a weird thing 
Maybe it's a weird thing. Maybe there was a weird smell that attracted the flies and that you can't smell. You know what I mean? Like you can. Yeah, but the window's open and the flies are back and it's wintertime. I know. I know. But to me, like you could talk that away. But when the kids start getting involved and they're like doing weird shit and they're seeing weird shit and they're telling you that they're seeing weird shit, it's like. Well, and the fact that George saw the pig. Yeah, George saw the pig. the fuck out. And didn't then, say anything. And now he's only I can see him. It's like you you go you about to be the only one who can see him because we about to leave. <laughs> and that's what it turns into. It's really weird that they they haven't done anything. Father Mancuso now he's stricken, and he can't leave. Yeah, he's he's worried. His he is so worried about this family. He's got a fever of 103. And that's he why, can't that's leave. Why Jody cursed his ass. Mm-hmm. He can't leave. He can't go to see them because he doesn't want to get them sick. Though getting them sick, getting George sick, might be the best thing for him because he's fucking cold. <laughs> like I don't know. It's probably sucking all of his energy out of him. Yeah, and then. That now Father Mancuso is probably cursed, and he's like, oh, so well, instead of more, being that's more, cold... it's more of a defensive thing to keep him away from the family so they can't, so he can't walk in and go, hey, just wanted to let y'all know, uh, sketchy shit's happening. When I blessed the house, I heard, get out, don't go to the second room, really creepy, and you should leave. Now don't go to the second room. I said, keep going to the second floor room. <laughs> it keeps drawing them there. It's like, oh my God. Burn it. Right. Okay, December 26th. One night, George doesn't remember exactly which. He woke again at 3.15 in the morning. He dressed and went out, and as he was wandering around in the freezing darkness, he wondered what in God's name he was looking for in the boathouse. Harry, their tough half-breed watchdog, didn't even wake up when George stumbled over some loose wires near Harry's compound. When the Lutzes lived in Deer Park, Harry also had his own doghouse and slept outside in all kinds of weather. Normally, he would remain awake, on guard, until 2 or 3 in the morning before finally setting, settling down and going to sleep. Any unfamiliar noise would bring Harry to alert attention. Since they had moved to 112 Ocean Avenue, the dog was usually fast asleep whenever George went out to the boathouse. He would awake only when his master called to him. George vividly remembers the day after Christmas, however, because that was the date set for Jimmy's wedding. It was also the beginning of a severe case of diarrhea he developed after checking out the boathouse. The pain was intense at first, almost as if a knife had pierced his stomach. George became frightened when he felt nausea rising in his throat. As soon as he re-entered the house, he made a dash for the bathroom on the first floor. It was daylight outside when he settled back into bed. The abdominal cramps were intense, but he finally fell asleep out of sheer exhaustion. Kathy awoke a few moments later and immediately roused him to remind him of the wedding affair that evening. There would be a lot of arrangements to be handled before her brother came to pick them up. She would be busy with her clothes and hair. George groaned in his half-sleep. Before going down to prepare breakfast for herself and the children, Kathy went up to the third floor to check in the playroom. It was still cold inside when she opened the door, but not as icy as the day before. George might not like to move from his fire, but he would just have to in order to check the radiator. It was working all night, but there was no heat in the room. Certainly the children couldn't stay in there any length of time, and Kathy wanted them out and Kathy wanted them out of the way until it was time to dress them for the wedding. 
She looked out of the window and saw the ground covered with slush from melted snow. That settled it. The three would remain indoors today. She decided they would have to play in their own bedrooms. After they were fed, Missy obediently started up to her own bedroom. Kathy warned her that she was not to go in the sewing room and that she was not even to open the door. That's okay, Mama. Jody wants to play in my room today. That's my good girl, Kathy smiled. You go and play with your friend. Oh, my God. The boys wanted to play outside, arguing that this was their Christmas vacation from school. It was the way they persisted and answered her back that angered Kathy. Danny and Chris never questioned her request before this, and she was becoming more aware that the two that her two sons had also changed since they had been in the new house. Again, aware of all of them changing. <laughs> but Kathy was not yet aware of her own personality changes, her impatience and crankiness. That's enough out of both of you, she yelled at her sons. I see you're asking for another beating. Now shut your mouths and get up to your room like I said and stay there until I call you. You hear me? Scat! Upstairs! Sullenly, Danny and Chris mounted the stairs to the third floor, passing George on his way down. He didn't acknowledge them. They didn't say good morning to him. In the dinette, George took one sip of coffee, clutched his stomach, and headed back upstairs to the, his bathroom. Don't forget you've got to shave and shower today, Kathy yelled at him. Considering George's speed in running up the stairs, she wasn't sure he had heard her. Kathy returned to her, bref to her breakfast nook. She had been making a shopping list, checking items in the refrigerator and cabinets that had, been, that had to be replaced. Food was again running low, and she would, and she knew she just had to get herself up and out of the house. She couldn't depend on George to do it. The big freezer in the basement, one of the free items they had received from the DeFeo estate, was clean and could be filled with meats and frozen foods. Her cleaning materials were almost exhausted since she had been scrubbing the toilet bowls day after day. Most of the blackness was gone by now. Kathy planned to go to Amityville Supermarket the next morning, Saturday. She wrote orange juice on her pad. Suddenly, she became aware of a presence in the kitchen. In Kathy's current state of mind over the eroding situation of her family, the memory of the first touch on her hand flooded back and she froze. Slowly, Kathy looked over her shoulder. She could see the kitchen was empty, but at the same time, she sensed that the presence was closer, almost directly behind her chair. Her nostrils caught a Swedish scent of perfume, and she recognized it as the odor that had permeated her bedroom four days before. Startled, Kathy could actually feel a body pressing against hers, clasping its arms around her waist. The pressure was light, however, and Kathy realized that, as before, it was a woman's touch, almost reassuring. The unseen presence didn't give her a sense of danger, not at first. Then the sweet smell became heavier. It seemed to swirl in the air, making Kathy dizzy. She started to gag, then tried to pull away from a grip that tightened as she struggled. Kathy thought she heard a whisper, and she recalls something deep within her warning her not to listen. No, she shouted, leave me alone. She struck out at the empty air. The embrace tightened, hesitated. Kathy felt a hand on her shoulder, making the same motions of motherly reassurance she had felt the first time in her kitchen. Then it was gone. All that remained was the odor of the cheap perfume. Kathy slumped back into her chair and closed her eyes. She began to cry. A hand touched her shoulder. Kathy jumped. 
Oh, God, no, not again. She opened her eyes. Missy was standing there, calmly patting on her arm. Don't cry, Mama. Then Missy turned her head to look back at the kitchen doorway. Kathy looked, too, but there was nothing there. Jody says you shouldn't cry, Missy said. He says everything will be all right soon. God. That's why I refuse to have children. I know. <laughs> at nine that morning, Father Mancuso had awakened in the Long Island rectory and taken his temperature. The thermometer had still read 103 degrees. But at 11 o'clock, the priest suddenly felt better. The cramps had disappeared from his stomach, and his head felt clear for the first time in days. Hurriedly, he slipped the thermometer back under his tongue. 98.6 degrees. His fever was gone. Suddenly, Father Mancuso felt hungry. He wanted to eat ravenously, but knew he should ease back into his normal diet. The priest made tea and toast in his kitchenette, his mind ticking off all the things that had been backlogged from his heavy work schedule. He completely forgot about George Lutz. By the same time, 11 a.m., George Lutz had no thoughts for Father Mancuso, Kathy, or his brother-in-law's wedding. He had just made his 10th trip to the bathroom, his diarrhea unrelieved. Jimmy's wedding and reception, an expensively catered affair for 50 couples, was to be held at the Astoria Manor in Queens. George would have a lot to do at the hall, but right now he couldn't have cared less. He dragged himself back down the stairs to his chair by the fireplace. Kathy came in the living room to tell him his office in Syoset had telephoned. The men wanted to know when George planned on coming in to work. There were surveying jobs that needed his supervision, and more and more of the building contractors were beginning to complain. Kathy also wanted to tell him about the second eerie incident in the kitchen, but George waved her off. She knew it would be pointless to try and reach him. Then, from upstairs, she heard the noise of Danny and Chris fighting in their bedroom again, both boys screaming at each other. She was about to shout up the stairs at them when George bolted past her, mounting the steps two at a time. Kathy couldn't bring herself to go after her husband. She stood by the bottom of the stairs and listened to George to George's shouts. In a few minutes, there was silence. Then the door to Danny and Chris's bedroom slammed, and she heard George's footsteps coming back down. He stopped when he saw Kathy waiting. They looked at each other, but neither spoke. George turned and went back up to the second floor, slamming the door to his and Kathy's bedroom. George came down a half hour later. For the first time in nine days, he had shaved and showered. Nine days without a shower? God, I could never. Sitting next to a fireplace, too, the entire time. Oh, God. That, he swamp, probably that smells, swamp booty was tight, probably. He probably smells so bad. Ugh. Yeah, that swamp booty was probably nice. Ugh. Dressed in clean clothes, he walked into the kitchen where Kathy was sitting with Missy. The little girl was eating lunch. You get her and the boys ready by five, he said. Then George turned and walked out. At 5.30, Jimmy came to pick up his sister and best man and the children. They were due at the Astoria Manor by 7. That was a late wedding. <laughs> Good Lord. From Amityville to Queens, the Sunrise Highway was the fastest way, and the trip to Astoria normally took an hour at most. The roads were reported to be icy from the recent light snow, however, and it was a Friday night. Traffic would be heavy and slow. Jimmy had played it safe by arriving early at the Lutzes. The young bridegroom looked resplendent, in his military uniform, his bright face shining with happiness. 
His sister kissed him excitedly and invited him into the kitchen to wait while George finished dressing. Jimmy took off his raincoat and then from his coat pocket, he proudly pulled out an envelope packed with $1,500 in cash. He had paid out most of the money at the manor some months before. This was the balance due. He said he had just withdrawn the money from his savings account and it was just about and it just about wiped him out. Jimmy put the money back into the envelope and returned it to his raincoat pocket, leaving the coat on the kitchen chair beside him. George came down neatly clad in a tuxedo. His face was pale from the diarrhea, but he was freshly combed, his dark blonde beard framing his handsome face. The two men went into the living room. George had let the last of his fire burn itself out, and now he poked around the ashes looking for any leftover embers to tamp out. The children were dressed and ready. Kathy went upstairs to get her coat. When she came down, Jimmy disappeared into the kitchen to get his raincoat. He returned a moment later, hoisting it over his shoulders. Ready? George asked. Ready as I'll ever be, Jimmy answered, automatically patting his side pocket to check on the envelope of money. His expression froze. He shoved his hand into the pocket. It came out empty. Jimmy searched the other pocket. Again, nothing. He tore off the raincoat, shaking it, then in turned then turned out every pocket in his uniform. The money was gone. Jimmy ran back into the kitchen, Kathy and George following. The three looked all over the room, then began inch by inch search of the foyer and living room. It was impossible, but Jimmy's $1,500 had completely disappeared. Jimmy became frantic. George, what am I going to do? His brother-in-law put his arm around the distraught Jimmy's shoulder. Take it easy. The money must be around here somewhere. George moved Jimmy to the door. Come on, we're running late now. I'll look again when I come back. It's here. Don't worry. Everything just welled up within Kathy and she let go, crying. As George looked at his wife, the lethargy that had gripped him over the past week fell away. He realized how hard he had been on Kathy. For the first time, he wasn't thinking only of himself. Then, in spite of the calamity that had just befallen Jimmy, regardless of the weakness he still felt in his loins from the diarrhea, George wanted to make love to Kathy. Oh my god. He hadn't touched her since they had moved into 112 Ocean Avenue. Come on, honey, let's go. He gave his wife a pat on her behind. I'll take care of everything. George, Kathy, and Jimmy got into Jimmy's car. The boys and Missy clambered into the back seat. After closing the door, George stepped out again. Just a minute. I want to check on Harry. He crossed the rear of the house as he walked into the winter darkness. George called out, Harry, you keep your eyes open, you hear? There was no answering bark. George came up to the wire fence of the compound. Harry, you there? By the reflection of the neighbor's light, he saw that Harry was in his doghouse. George unlatched the gate and entered the compound. What's the matter, Harry? You sick? George bent down. He heard the slower... He heard slow canine snoring. It was only six in the evening, and Harry was fast asleep. All right, December 27th. The Lutzes returned home from the wedding at 3 a.m. It had been a very long night. It began with the mysterious disappearance of Jimmy's $1,500, and several other incidences during the evening hadn't had any particular joy to George's appreciation of the happy event. Before the wedding ceremony, George, the other ushers, and the bridegroom had taken communion in the little church near the manor. During the ritual, George became violently nauseated. When Father Satini, the pastor of Our Lady of Martyrs Roman Catholic Church, gave George the chalice of wine to drink, George started to sway dizzily in front of the priest. Jimmy reached out his hand to his brother-in-law, but George brushed it off and dashed towards the men's room at the rear of the church. 
After he had thrown up and returned to the hotel, George told Kathy he had actually become queasy the moment he had entered Our Lady of Martyrs. The reception ran fairly smoothly. So you know why he threw up? Hmm. Because he has an evil like spirit latched onto him. Yeah. And when you take communion, it's supposed to be a cleansing of your body. Ooh. And his body's rejecting the cleansing. See, I thought it was the wine just because he was he's been sick. He said as soon as he walked so as soon as he walked into the church, he started. Yeah, but that makes sense now. Holy ground, right? Mm-hmm. And then he goes to take communion, which is a cleansing of your sins and, you know, your torment and anything bad around you. Mm-hmm. And his body rejected it. Oof. There was plenty of food, drinking and dancing, usually associated with an Irish wedding. And everyone seemed to be having a good time. George had to go to the bathroom only once when he thought his diarrhea might be returning. But generally, he wasn't too uncomfortable. Kathy's brother and his new bride, Carrie, were leaving for their honeymoon in Bermuda directly from the manor and would take a cab to LaGuardia Airport. George would be driving Kathy and the children back to Amityville in Jimmy's car so he didn't drink too much. Then came the unpleasant moment of settling up the hall's catering man. Jimmy, his new father-in-law, and George told the man of the unexpected loss of cash, but promised they would pay him his money out of their wedding gifts. Unfortunately, with the traditional congratulations are in order was spoken, most of the envelopes left on the table in front of the bride and groom contained personal checks. The actual cash amounted to a little more than $500. The manager was upset, but after a few minutes of haggling, agreed to accept two checks from George for $500 each, one from his personal checking account and the other drawn on George's surveying company account in Syaset. The one where he hasn't been working. Yeah. But, you know, he's helping a homie out. George knew he didn't have $500 in his personal checking account, but since the next two days were Saturday and Sunday, he would have time to cover the draft on Monday. Isn't that fraud? No. Oh. It's a smart oh, if it the bounces. Game. Yeah, but the bank's not open till Monday, so it won't bounce till then. Oh, okay. That's why he's saying he, he's going to figure it out. Jimmy's father-in-law quickly conferred with his relatives and scraped up enough cash for his new son-in-law to pay for the honeymoon. Luckily, the plane tickets were already paid for, the wedding party broke up around 2, and the Lutzes headed back to 112 Ocean Ave. Kathy went up to bed immediately while George checked on the boathouse and the dog's compound. Harry was still asleep. Stirring only slightly when George called his name, when he bent to pat the dog, George wondered if Harry was drugged, but then dismissed the thought. No, he was probably just sick. Must have eaten something he found in the yard. George straightened up. He'd have to take Harry to the vet. The boathouse door was secure, so George returned to the house, locking the front door. As he went to the kitchen, he glanced down at the floor, hoping to spot the missing envelope of money. No luck. The kitchen door and windows on the first floor were all locked. George climbed the stairs to his bedroom, thinking about his wife and their warm, soft bed. Passing the sewing room, he noticed the door was slightly ajar. He thought of the children. One of them must have opened it before they left the house. He'd ask them the next morning, when they woke up. Kathy was asleep, but waiting for him. During the evening, she had gotten her husband's vibration and was eager for his touch. (laughs) George hadn't touched her since they moved in. Usually they made love once a night from the day they were married in July. But from December 18th to December 27th, George hadn't made a move in her direction. Once a night? That's a lucky man right there. I (laughs) know. He got him a good woman. No, you stop. (laughs) Do you think it's like their religion? No, they're Catholics. I don't know. 
He just got lucky. He picked a good one, unlike the rest of us. <laughs> you better keep reading. Any guy that's that just heard me read that sentence went, "Damn, I wish I had that." <laughs> Any guy, and every girl's going, "That'll never happen." Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what just happened. Mm-hmm. Oh God. That's funny. <clears throat> But now the children were fast asleep, exhausted from their late evening. She watched George undress, and all the misgivings of the few past days melted in her mind. He slipped under the heavy blanket. Hey, this is wonderful. (laughs) Hey, this is wonderful. George reached for Kathy's warmth, alone at last, as they say. That night... Kathy had a dream of Louise DeFeo and a man making love in the very same room she was lying in. When she awoke in the morning, the vision remained with her. Somehow, Kathy knew that the man was not Louise's husband. It was not until several weeks after she had learned the family had fled from 112 Ocean Ave that she learned from an attorney close to the DeFeos that Louise actually did have a lover, an artist who lived with the family for a while. Mr. DeFeo must have known about the affair and informed the lawyer. In the morning, that's probably why she got shot in the head. No, it's not. Everybody else was shot in the back and she was shot in the head. I thought she was shot in the head because she was the one who looked, who, was she the one who looked up? No, that was one of his sisters. One of his sisters. Oh, okay. Yeah, he's probably angry at her. He shot her in the head because she was an adulteress. In the morning, Kathy took the van to go shopping in Amityville while George drove the children in Jimmy's car to pick up the mail at his office in Syosset. He even gave Harry a ride, telling his employees he would be in on Monday for sure. They came home to find Kathy putting groceries into the kitchen refrigerator. She had also brought back a load for the basement freezer. Kathy bemoaned the fact that prices were higher in Amityville stores. I thought they would be, George shrugged. Amityville is more affluent than Deer Park. By then, it was after 1 o'clock, though Kathy wanted to make lunch. She had to transport the additional frozen foods and meat into her freezer in the basement. George volunteered to put together sandwiches for himself and the children. While Kathy was in the basement, the front doorbell rang. It was her Aunt Teresa. George had met the woman once before at his mother-in-law's before he and Kathy were married. Teresa had been a nun at one time. Okay. And now she's got three kids. Yeah. Why would you say that? I didn't read that yet. <laughs> I'm sorry. Now she had three children. But George never did learn the exact reasons for her departure from her order. Probably being pregnant. <laughs> now the former nun stood in the doorway, a short, thin woman in her early 30s, plainly clad in warm black wool winter coat and galoshes. Her galoshes. Ah! <laughs> Galoshes. So sorry. What is a galosh? It's a shoe. Oh, okay, whatever. (laughs) Her face was tired but ruddy from the cold. The weather was bright and clear and the temperature hovering in the low teens. Teresa told George she had taken the bus to Amityville and walked from the station. George called down to Kathy that her aunt had come to visit. She said she'd be right up and told George to show Aunt Teresa around the new home. The children greeted their great-aunt silently. Teresa's grim face forestalled their natural inclination toward friendliness. Good lord, big words. Oh, no. (laughs) Danny asked to go outside with Chris. Okay, George agreed, but you have to promise to stay within range of the house. 
Missy ran down the stairs to the basement. George noted how sad Teresa looked when the children didn't respond to her. As he conducted Teresa around the first floor, pointing out the formal dining room and the huge living room, George became aware of a chill in the house. A clamminess he hadn't noticed until Aunt Teresa came. She agreed that it had seemed rather cold when she entered the house. George looked at the very high-efficiency thermostat, (laughs) according to my wife. It read 75 degrees, but George knew he'd have to kindle the fire again. Because, you know, it's got to be fucking 80 or nothing. (laughs) They went up to the second floor. Teresa glanced disapprovingly at the smoked mirrors behind George and Kathy's bed. He could read her thoughts. She believed that such a blatant display smacked of vulgarity and wanted to tell her that the DeFeos had left the mirrors. But he decided to let the subject pass. The The woman was still a nun at heart. She thought they had sex mirrors. <laughs> Wait, what is? what are those? Some people like having mirrors in their bedroom, so when they're having sex, they can look at the mirror and watch everything that's going on. That's gross. It happens. Just but... like some people will do them above their beds. Oh, God, stop. So they can see, you know, your body, my body. That's gross. <laughs> well, I mean, they also do it once a night, too, so. They did. They might be eating some freaky deaky shit. Anyway. <laughs> I won't go in there, she said, turning her back to him. Had Teresa seen anything through the open door? George looked into the room. There were no flies, thank God, or Kathy's reputation for house cleaning would have suffered an imperable blow. But George could feel the room was ice cold. He looked at Teresa. She was still standing implacably, her back to the room. He shut the door and suggested they try the top floor. When it came time to examine the playroom, the former nun balked again. No, she said. That's another bad place. I don't like it. Just as George and her aunt came down, Kathy came from the basement with Missy. The two women hugged each other, and Kathy, guiding her aunt toward the kitchen, said, George, I'll finish up downstairs later. I want to transfer some of the canned goods into a closet I found down there. We can use it as a pantry. George went to the living room to build up his fire yet again. Teresa hadn't been in the house for more than half an hour when she decided it was time to go. Having expected that her aunt would stay for supper, Kathy was disappointed. George can drive you back, Kathy offered, but the older woman refused. There's something bad in here, Kathy. She said, looking about it, I must go now. But Aunt Teresa, it's so very cold out. The woman shook her head. She stood up, pulled her heavy coat about her, and was heading for the door before... heading for the front door when Danny and Chris came in with another young boy. The three children watched Teresa nod to George and kiss Kathy lightly on the cheek. As she strode out the door, Kathy and George looked at each other at a loss for words at the woman's strange behavior. Finally, Kathy noticed her sons and their playmate. This is Bobby, Mama, Chris said. We just met. He lives up the street. Hello, Bobby, Kathy smiled. The little dark-haired boy looked about Danny's age. Hesitantly, Bobby stuck out his right hand. Kathy shook it and introduced George. This is Mr. Lutz. George grinned at the boy, shaking his small hand. Why don't you three all go upstairs and play? Bobby paused, his eyes darting about the foyer. No, that's all right, he said. I'd rather play down here. Here? asked Kathy in the foyer. Yes, ma'am. Kathy looked at George. Her eyes carried the unspoken question. What's wrong with this house that makes everybody so uncomfortable? For the next half hour, the three boys played in the foyer floor with Danny and Chris's Christmas toys. Bobby never took off his winter jacket. Kathy went back to the basement to finish making the closet into a pantry, and George returned to the living room fireplace. When Bobby stood up and told Danny and Chris that he wanted to go home, 
That was the first and last time the boy from up the street ever set foot in 112 Ocean Avenue. The basement of the Lutz's house was 43 by 28 feet. When George first looked it over, he came down the stairs and saw off to the right battened doors that led to the oil burner. Hot water heater. That's wrong. It's not a hot water heater. It's a, it's a water heater. Oh my God. If the water was already hot, it wouldn't need to be heated. Just saying. And the freezer. Washers and dryers left from the DeFeo estate. To his left, through another set of doors, was a playroom. 11 by 28 feet. Beautifully finished in walnut paneling with recessed fluorescent lights and a drop-down ceiling. Directly in front of him was the area he planned to use for his office. A small closet opened into the space beneath the stairs and between the staircase and the right-hand wall. Plywood panels formed an additional closet extending out about seven feet with shelving that ran from the ceiling to the floor. This walk-in area George thought made a good made good use of what would otherwise be wasted space and its proximity to the kitchen stairs made it most convenient pantry. Kathy was working in these closets when she stacked some large, heavy canned goods against the closet's wall. One of the shelves cracked. One side of the plywood paneling on the rear wall seemed to give a little. She moved the cans aside and pushed against the panel. It moved farther away from the shelving. The closet was lit by a single bulb hanging from the ceiling. The bulb's reflection shone through a small slit opening, just enough to give Kathy the impression that there was an empty space behind the closet. Under the tallest section of the stairs, she went to the basement and called George to come down. He looked at the opening and pushed against the paneling. The wall continued to give a little more. There's there's not supposed to be anything back there, he said to Kathy. George removed the four wooden shelves, then shoved hard against the plywood. It swung all the way open. It was a secret door. The room was small, about four by five feet. Kathy gasped. From the ceiling to floor, it was painted solid red. What is it, George? I don't know, he answered, feeling the three solid concrete block walls. It seemed to be an extra room. Maybe a bomb shelter? Everyone was building them in the late 50s, but it sure doesn't show up in the house plans the broker gave us. Do you think the DeFeos built it, Kathy asked? holding nervously onto George's arm. I don't know that either. I guess so, he said, steering Kathy out of the secret room. I wonder what it was used for. He pulled the panel closed. Do you think there are more rooms like that behind the closets, Kathy asked? I don't know, Kathy, George answered. I'll have to check out each wall. Did you notice the funny smell in there? Yeah, I smelled it, George said. That's how blood smells. Iron. The walls were painted with blood. She took a deep breath. George, I'm worried about this house. A lot's happening that I don't understand. George saw Kathy put her fingers in her mouth, a sign that she was scared. Little Missy always did the same thing when she was frightened. George patted his wife on the head. Don't worry, baby. I'll find out what the hell that room is all about. But we can use it as an extra pantry. Fucking white people. He turned out the light in the closet shutting out the sight of the rear wall panel, but not obscuring the fleeting vision of a face he glimpsed against the plywood. In a few days, George would realize it was the bearded visage of Ronnie DeFeo. So, okay, so she's finally like, a lot's happening, I don't understand it, I'm, I don't like this house. And the realization is that everybody <laughs> else feels like that. The kid, her aunt. Right. I don't <clears throat> So, okay, so December 28th. On Sunday, Father Frank Mancuso returned to the Long Island 
rectory after celebrating mass in the church it was only several yards from one building to the other but the priest felt his recent weakness as he walked in the cold air in the rectory's reception room there was a visitor waiting for him sergeant gianfredo of the suffolk county police department the two men shook hands and father mancuso led gianfredo to his quarters on the second floor i'm glad you called me the priest said and i appreciate that you came that's all right father it's my day off this week the big detective looked over the priest's apartment. The living room was filled with books that overflowed the bookcases onto tables and chairs. He took a stack off the couch and sat down. Father Mancuso wanted to warm up, and he had no liquor in his rooms to offer the policeman, so instead he made some tea. While it brewed, he got right to the point of his request for Gianfrido's visit. As you know, he began, I'm concerned about the Lutzes. That's why I asked Charlie Guarino to contact somebody in Amityville to check if they were all right. The priest walked into his kitchenette to get some cups and saucers. Charlie reminded me that they're living in the house where that unfortunate DeFeo family was slain. I'd heard about the case from some friends of mine, but I don't really know how it happened. I was on that case, Father, the detective interrupted. So Charlie told me when he called back the other night. Father Mancuso brought the tea and sat down across from Gianfrido. Anyway, I had a hard time falling asleep last night. I don't why. I don't know why, but I kept thinking about the DeFeos. He looked up at Gianfrido, trying to read the expression on his face. It was difficult, even though Father Mancuso had years of experience in probing people for facts, fancied or real, from his clients and family counseling who came before him. He didn't know whether to reveal what happened to him on that first day in 112 Ocean Avenue or on the telephone to George. Gianfrido quickly read the priest's thoughts and solved the problem. You think there's something funny going on in that house, Father. I don't know. That's what I wanted to ask you. The detective put down his cup of tea. What is it you're looking for? A haunted house? You want to tell me there's something spooky about that place? The priest shook his head. No, but it'll help me if you can tell me what happened the night of the murders. I understand the boy said he heard voices. Gianfrido looked into a pair of piercing eyes and saw the priest was troubled. He cleared his throat, put on his official voice. Well, basically, the story is that Ronald DeFeo drugged his family at a dinner on November 13, 1974, and then shot them all with a high-powered rifle while they were out cold. At his trial, he did claim a voice told him to do it. Father Mancuso waited for more details, but Gianfrido had finished his report. That's it? The priest asked. Gianfrido nodded. Like I said, that's basically it. It must have been, it must have awakened the whole neighborhood? Father Mancuso continued, Nope, nobody heard the shots. We found out about it later when Ronnie went into the witch's brew and told the bartender. The witch's brew is a bar near Ocean Avenue. The kid was stoned out of his head. Father Mancuso was confused. You mean he used a high-powered rifle to kill six people and no one heard that noise? Gianfrido thinks it was just about then that he began to feel nauseated in the priest's apartment. He felt he had to leave. That's right. People in houses on both sides of the DeFeos said they never heard a thing that night. Gianfrido stood up. Is that, isn't that rather peculiar? Yeah, I thought so myself, the detective said, slipping on his overcoat. But you gotta remember, Father, it was the middle of winter. A lot of people sleep with their windows shut tight. At 3.15 in the morning, they're dead to the world. Sergeant Al Gianfrido knew the priest had more questions, but he didn't care. He had to get out of there. No sooner was he outside the rectory than he threw up. 
by the time he returned to Amityville, Gianfredo felt the uneasiness passing. At first, he thought of driving past 112 Ocean Avenue, but changed his mind. Instead, he headed home, rolling up the Amityville Road. He drove past the Witch's Brew on his right. The Witch's Brew was a hangout for a lot of kids in the town, especially during the season when Amityville was filled with summer house renters. But now, on a December Sunday afternoon, Amityville Road, the main shopping street in town, was empty. The pro football playoffs were on television, and the regulars were at home glued to their sets. As he rode by, Gianfredo didn't really notice the figure going into the witch's brew. The detective was a good 50 feet beyond before he swerved his police car and braked to stop. He looked back, but the man was gone. The shape of the body, the beard, and the swaggering walk were the same as Ronnie DeFeo's. Gianfredo continued to stare at the doorway to the club. Ugh, I'm getting jumpy, he muttered. Who needs that priest? The detective turned around, jerked the gear shift into drive, and pulled away from the curb, burning rubber like a hot rotter. <laughs> Inside the witch's brew, George Lutz ordered his first beer. He wondered why the bartender stared at him when he sat down at the bar. Because he's taking the same look and mannerism as yep. Ronnie. Yep. It's turning him into Ronnie DeFeo. Yep. The man opened a bottle of Miller's and was pouring it when he stopped. He looked as though he was about to say something to George, but then he went ahead pouring the beer. George looked around him. The witch's brew could have been any one of a number of bars George had seen in his travels as a Marine corporal and as a surveyor working the small towns and villages of Long Island. Dimly lit, the usual garish jukebox, the smell of stale beer and smoke. There was just one other customer in the place down at the very end of the long mahogany bar, absorbed by watching a television set above the bar mirrors as an announcer described the first half action of the football game. George sniffed, took a gulp of his beer, and looked himself in the mirror behind the bar. He'd had to get out of the house for a while, be by himself. He couldn't get a handle on what was happening to his family. The little bits and pieces that he would recognize later on were still too isolated for him. George couldn't understand what was wrong with the children since they moved into the new house. In his eyes, they were wild, unmannered. That had never been the case before, not when they lived in Deer Park. He thought Missy was acting strangely. Did he really see a pig in her window the other night? And where was Jimmy's money? How could it simply disappear in front of them? George finished his beer and signaled for another. His eyes returned to his image in the mirror. He recalled now, earlier that week, He'd been sitting like a dummy in front of the fireplace, then standing and staring in the boathouse. Why? And now this business with that red room in the basement? What the hell was that all about? Well, tomorrow he'd be digging into the background of the house. The first place to do that would be the Amityville Real Estate Tax Assessment Office, where he could look at the record of improvements that applied to the property at 112 Ocean Avenue. Yeah, he muttered to himself, and I got to get the... And I got... To get to the bank to cover that check. Can't let that bounce. George drank down the last second, the last of his second beer. At first, he didn't notice the bartender standing in front of him. Then he looked up and saw the man waiting. George covered his glass with his hand to signal that he didn't want another. Excuse me, mister, said the bartender. You passing through? No, George answered. I live here in Amityville. We just moved in. The bartender nodded. Well, you are a dead ringer for a young feller from around here. For a moment, I thought you was him. He rang up George's money. He's away now. 
won't be back for a while. He put the change on the bar. Maybe never. George took the money and shrugged. People were always at... People were always mistaking him for someone else they knew. Maybe it was the beard. A lot of guys wore them these days. Well, see you around. He headed for the entrance to the witch's brew. The bartender nodded again. Yeah, drop in again. George was at the door. Hey, asked the bartender. By the way, where'd you move into? George stopped, looked back, and pointed toward the general direction to the west. Oh, just a couple of streets from here, on Ocean. The bartender felt George's used beer glasses slipping from his hand when he heard George's final remark, 112 Ocean Avenue. It dropped from his hand and crashed to the floor. Kathy was waiting for George to come home. She sat in the living room by the Christmas tree, not wanting to be in the kitchen nook by herself for fear of meeting up with that invisible something that reeked of perfume. The children were up in the boys' bedroom watching television. They had been quiet most of the afternoon, absorbed in an old movie. By the delighted laughter that drifted down to her, Kathy was sure it was, Ab- it was Abbott and Costello. Now she was trying to concentrate on where Jimmy's money could be. Again, Kathy and George had gone over every square inch of the kitchen, foyer, living, and dining rooms, and closets looking for the envelope. It couldn't just have vanished into thin air. No one could have possibly been in the house to take it. Where the devil could it have gone? Kathy thought about the presence in the kitchen and shuddered. She forced her mind to think of other rooms in the house. The sewing room, the red room in the basement. She began to get out of her chair, then stopped. Kathy was afraid to go down there alone. Anyway, she thought, sitting back down, she and George hadn't seen anything but red paint when they were in there. She looked at her watch. It was almost four o'clock. Where was George? He'd been gone for over an hour. Then, out of the corner of her right eye, she saw movement. One of Kathy's first Christmas gifts to George had been a huge four-foot ceramic lion crouched ready to leap upon an unseen victim and painted in realistic colors. George had thought it was a pretty piece and had moved it to the living room where it now sat on a large table beside his chair near the fireplace. When Kathy turned to look fully at the sculpture, she was, sur- she was sure she had seen it move a few inches closer towards her. After Sergeant Gianfrido left Father Mancuso's apartment that afternoon, the priest became angry with himself. He hated the way he was handling the Lutz situation and resolved to break his obsession with the whole affair. For the next several hours, he drove into issues that were coming up in court the following week, pouring over caseloads that had piled up. Realizing he had important decisions to make that would affect people's lives, he now cleared his mind of abstractions like Gianfrido's unsatisfactory explanation of the DeFeo murders and the doubts he had about the Lutz's safety in that house. As he worked, he slowly became aware that he was regaining his strength. The weakness he had felt in the wintry air was gone. It was now after six. He was hungry, and he reminded himself that he hadn't had anything to eat or drink since that cup of tea with Gianfrido. Father Mancuso put down a file, stretched his body, and went into the kitchenette. In the living room, the telephone rang. It was his private number. He picked it up and said, hello. There was no answer, only static crackling from the receiver. The priest felt a chill run through his frame. As he, held his, as he held the telephone in his hand, he began to perspire, recalling his last call with George Lutt. George was listening to the sharp, snapping pops on his own telephone. It had rung while he was in the kitchen with Kathy and the children. 
Finally, after no one answered his repeated hellos, George slammed the receiver back on the hook. How do you like that? Some wise guys on the other end playing games. Kathy looked up at her husband. They were eating supper. George had shown up just a few moments before. He told her he had taken a very long walk around the town. And he was convinced the street they lived on in Amityville was the nicest. Kathy thought George looked better for having gotten out of the house. She felt foolish about wanting to mention the lion and forgot the incident now that w- that George was upset again. What happened, she asked. There was no one on the other end. That's what happened. It was just a lot of static. He started to sit down at the table. You know, it was just like the other time when I tried to talk to Father Mancuso. I wonder if he's trying to reach us. George went back to the telephone and dialed the priest's private number. He waited until it rung ten times. There was no answer. George looked at the electric clock over the kitchen sink. It was exactly seven. He shivered a little. Don't you think it's getting chilly in here again, Kathy? Father Mancuso had just taken his temperature. It was up to 102 degrees. Oh no, he moaned. Not that again. He began to take his pulse, holding a finger on his wrist. The priest started to count when... The big hand of his watch was exactly on 12. He noted it was 7 o'clock. In one minute's time, his heart beat 120 times. Normally, Father Mancuso's pulse ran about 80 beats per minute. He knew he was going to be sick again. George left the kitchen for the living room. I'd better put up some more wood into the fireplace, he told Kathy. She watched her husband shamble out of the kitchen. Kathy began to get that depressed feeling again. She heard a loud crash from the living room. It was George. Who the hell left this lion on the floor? It almost killed me. <laughs> so So the lion did move. What lion are they talking? Oh, the lion. The, the, the ceramic Christmas, one. The Christmas one. She okay. bought him for Christmas. Okay. I forgot. Okay, yes, yes, yes. So it did move. It did move. And it did fall on the floor, right? That's well, what she was saying. It moved to the floor. It moved to the floor. Something sketchy is going on. Okay, so we're going to pause here. I know we didn't quite make it to New Year's Eve. So next time, we're going to go December 29th to the 30th. Maybe we can read to January 6th. We'll try. We'll try. We'll see. It'll just be multi-parter because we don't want to miss anything. We want to discuss it every time we talk about it and everything. And there's so so much to talk about like when stuff pops up. So, I mean, it has to be... Four parts, five parts, doesn't matter. If you guys don't care, we don't care. No, because this, this is a good story. It is a really good story, and it has a lot more detail than <laughs> I could ever. And that's ever. how you can tell what year that this was written, because they went back through, and he didn't drug his family. There were no drugs found in their system. Right. They just assumed it was pretty cut and dry. He walked up to the bar, said, hey, I just killed my entire family. Voices made me do it. Right. They were like, oh, well, nobody moved. He drugged them. Done. Right. And the reason why he got sick is because, you know, hey, man, how did nobody hear the shots of a 30-30 going off? Yeah. And even he was like, are you sure? He was like, are you sure nobody heard that? Right. And he's like, oh, I got that unsettling feeling. I'm going to go outside and throw up real quick because, oh, God. Mm-hmm. 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 So it's going to so, keep getting worse. Yeah. And at this point, I probably would have moved out. I don't know. Because then again, it's like... At some point, I feel like you can kind of, like, dismiss everything. But then it's like, at the same time, you're like, why is this happening Each to one me? of these events isolated, yeah, you can dismiss it. Right, that's what, yeah, that's the, what I mean. But the fact that it's all happening at the same time is very 
sketchy. Yeah, because it's happening like day after day after day. Every day. Something's happening every day. So, yeah. And it's all culminating and they're all seeing the same things. And everybody's feeling the same way they do. And they're like, well, maybe we're just crazy because, you know, we just bought a new house or whatever. You know, that's what it is. (laughs) And then it turned into family and friends are visiting and they're like, no, fuck this house, dude. I'm not. uh -uh." Yeah. Hell no. I'm sorry. I'm going to listen to the former nun. (laughs) If the nun don't like this house. I'm not going to like this well, house. Well, the nun, the pastor, and then that one kid was like, I'm never going back in here ever again. Nope. Yeah. Yeah, you know. yeah. So, I don't know. So, we'll see next time what else happens. And just want to give you guys the full story of this Amityville because it's a great story and it's so much happened that... I mean, it's not a great story. I mean... Bad things happen. Yeah. <laughs> but so much happened and... This book has so much more information than I could ever look up myself. Well, and most people know the movie, not the actual book that was written for the family. Right. So, yeah. So, we're just going to keep going. And uh, this is part two. And next week, we'll have part three. So. Sounds good. We'll see you then. Later. Bye. Thanks for coming to hang out with us and letting us tell you stories. Don't forget, you can find us on social media, Facebook and Instagram at 3AM Tales of Terror. You can find pictures from each episode there, as well as our website, 3, the number 3, 3AMTalesOfTerror.com. You can also subscribe with your email at our website for updates as well. If you have questions or story ideas for us, you can email us at info at 3AMTalesOfTerror.com. If you want to support us, you can sign up to become part of our Patreon. There, you will get ad-free episodes as well as bonus content. We hope you'll join us next week. And And we we hope hope you you are terrified. terrified.